I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Nala Ayed. Welcome to Ideas. He, he writes beautifully and he writes in an arresting and immediate way. Um, always, always interesting and uh, fascinating. He knew at the beginning this was going to be a war that he needed to pay attention to. And what he's telling you is, I am precise. And right from the beginning, I've been precise in collecting the details that matter. He's the first war correspondent that is writing about something as it happens, A, and B, he's intimately involved in it. So he's taking enormous risk to his person to get on the scene. But he's a man of action. He's traveling around the Greek world. It's very dangerous. And he, he is our first war correspondent. He's just amazing at drawing you in, at making you feel as if you're there. And it's clear throughout the book that so much is at stake. All the great human issues show themselves in the course of this war. The best that human beings and cities are capable of, the worst that human beings and cities are capable of. But how he put it all together, it's astounding. It was a war deemed unmatched by any other. And the stakes were high. A battle between two forces representing diametrically opposed worldviews and traditions. It lasted 27 years. Countless lives were lost. And one man was on the scene scrupulously capturing the battles, the massacres, and the great political speeches that unfolded. And through his recording of the events, He set the bar for the way we tell stories and record history today. Testing, testing. One, two, one, two. Okay, I got this pen working finally. It's 431 BC, and war is breaking out between the powerful Spartan Confederacy and the Athenian Empire. Thucydides, a man known to have pretty high standing in Athens, begins his chronology. Thucydides, that's me, the Athenian, wrote the history of the war fought between Athens and Sparta, beginning the account at the very outbreak of the war in the belief that it was going to be a great war and more worth writing about than any of those which had taken place in the past. This was the greatest disturbance in the history of the Hellenes, affecting also a large part of the non-Hellenic world, and indeed, I might almost say, the whole of mankind. And with that, Thucydides begins his roughly 500-page account of the Peloponnesian War. Ideas producer Nikola Lukšić brings us his history and his revolutionary approach to war coverage. Here's her documentary, Thucydides, the First Journalist. 
About 2,500 years ago, the ancient Greek world was teetering on the edge of a war that would spell the demise of an empire and eventually lead to the implosion of ancient Greece's power. The two main forces in this war were Sparta, a staid, militaristic, and slow-moving oligarchy, and Athens, a vibrant, young, creative democracy. The problem was that the Hellenic world wasn't really big enough for both the Athenian Empire and the Spartan Confederacy. Clifford Orwin first read Thucydides' account of the Peloponnesian War when he was 12 years old, and it remains his favorite text. He teaches political philosophy and ancient thought at the University of Toronto, and is the author of a book called The Humanity of Thucydides. They really were almost two different ways of life. I mean, they were both recognizably part of the Greek way of life. They had the same gods and dialects of the same language and so on, and many of the same institutions. But Sparta was intensely traditional, and Sparta was also um, intensely regimented. Whereas Athens was the city of innovation, Athens was open to everything new especially to everything new in the way of thought, whereas Sparta was quite resistant to what was new in the way of thought. There was a kind of freedom, obviously, um, in the air in Athens, and a kind of freedom of conduct, for that matter, in Athens that was absent in Sparta. At the same time, Sparta was sound and Athens was shaky. That's something that would become increasingly clear as the war proceeded. We're talking now at the eve of the Peloponnesian War. Athens would be self-confident, profoundly democratic, believing in its ability to try new things. Sparta believed in its Lycurgan revolution that had been, in its mind, going on for a couple of centuries, the maintenance of old values of traditional warrior strengths. Carolyn DeWald first read Thucydides in her teens, She's a professor of history and the director of the Classical Studies program at Bard College. Philosophical, political, and lifestyle preferences aside, Athens and Sparta also celebrated starkly different military strengths. Military historian and classicist Victor Davis Hansen. Athens was a sea power. It had over 250, somewhere between 250 and 300 triremes. It had an army, but it was its main military assets were triremes or rowing ships that could ram. Sparta, on the, while it did have ships, it, its strength lay in a, in a crack army of 10,000. So Sparta had a group of land allies within the Peloponnese. Athens had an overseas empire. Sparta believed in military rigor, brought out the best in people. Athenians were cosmopolitan and were more likely to subsidize poetry, drama, comedy. And so, at least in the eyes of contemporaries, this particular conflict brought all the binaries, all the paradoxes of the classical Greek city-state. In other words, it was a referendum under which system, oligarchy, democracy, parochial, rural life versus cosmopolitan city life, sea power versus land power, Ionian liberality versus Doric severity. So all of that came together in this 27 and a half year war. So here you have two mighty powers staring each other in the face. According to Thucydides, What made war inevitable was the growth of Athenian power and the fear which this caused in Sparta. 
Never before had so many cities been captured and then devastated, whether by foreign armies or by the Hellenic powers themselves. Never had there been so many exiles. Never such a loss of life, both in the actual warfare and in internal revolutions. So who pulled the trigger? Well, we should remember that Athens didn't start the war. Sparta did. It preempted, to use that now controversial term, in 431, it preempted by invading the Athenian uh, countryside in somewhere around May of 431. And the Athenians had no deterrence. They could not stop uh, Sparta from doing so. And this way of thinking, Sparta, why did they preempt? Why did they start a war with Athens? They had had an alliance with them. They had been former allies. They had fought a war earlier, roughly 15 years before, that was inconclusive. It was the view of the historian Thucydides that it was almost inevitable because Sparta, being somewhat conservative and parochial and without a dynamic culture or economy, was losing influence. And Athens was spreading culturally through drama, through literature, through a vibrant economy, through a multifaceted uh, military. And the Spartans came to the conclusion that if they did not preempt, then in 431, then their culture would be in, in decline. And so war breaks out. Athens' brash, self-assured enthusiasm met by Sparta's cool confidence. And it's important to remember that the war didn't just sit with those two great forces. But city-states across the region got sucked into the fight as they allied themselves with either Athens or Sparta. And Thucydides captured the vortex as it unleashed itself on the ancient world. Thucydides is brilliant in showing us how cities are drawn in inevitably. City by city kind of gets pulled into this convulsive major regional war because of the power of Athens and the power of Sparta and the way they opposed each other. It just became almost irresistible. I think it would be fair to say it might seem to a Greek the way a world war would seem to us. Um, every city in Greece was involved and the magnitude of the suffering, I think he's correct, that each city as it got sucked in really did experience extraordinary dislocations and loss of life. It, it would be a terrifying thing to experience that breakdown. And Thucydides uses the imagery of plague. Hmm, the best way to describe this plague that hit Athens? I'll just describe what it was like and set down the symptoms. I had the disease myself and I saw others suffering from it. The plague is what he starts the second year of the war with, and plague in Athens almost destroyed the city, although their strength was so great that they, they were able to continue to carry out their military aims, but huge loss of life in Athens. Thucydides, son of Alorus, reporting live from the Athens plague. I have to say it's a brutal scene, bodies piled on bodies. Those who are still alive are vomiting every kind of vomit catalogued by the medical establishment. People are bleeding from their mouths and tongues. In desperate attempts to cool the fevers and quench their thirst, the sick are plunging themselves into fountains. Corpses, you know, being set alight to burn in funeral pyres, and somebody would come along and toss another corpse on top of it. This, the plague is striking everyone, including the most devout. So. 
He starts with the actual plague that hit Athens at the beginning of the second year of the war, and he uses that as a metaphor for the way war itself continued to spread throughout the Greek world as a sort of infection. And that's how, in a rough nutshell, Thucydides described the plague that tore through Athens, foreshadowing the horror of the war that would unfold across ancient Greece and beyond. And the war wouldn't have survived so vividly in civilization's memory if it weren't for Thucydides' thorough reporting and careful analysis. The Peloponnesian War is the most significant war because it has the greatest chronicler. He aimed to get as close to the truth as possible. He wasn't interested in gossip or fancy indulgent stories. His aim was pure, objective truth. Right at the beginning of his account, he distances himself from traditional storytelling, the kind that indulges in believing that gods or the fates play important roles in the real world. You just can't rely on every detail which has come down to us by way of tradition. People are inclined to accept all stories of ancient times in an uncritical way. Most people, in fact, will not take the trouble in finding out the truth, but are so much more inclined to accept the first story they hear. Thucydides approached recording the Peloponnesian War with a scientific rigor. Thucydides at least thought that he too was a scientist and that he could apply the scientific method to his history and rather than bringing in gods and the Trojan War and heroes and fantastic archaeological finds from an, an ancient age, he would say, I'm not going to do that. I don't think that one will be far wrong in accepting the conclusions I have reached from the evidence which I have put forward. It's better evidence than that of the poets who exaggerate the importance of their themes or of the prose of chroniclers who are less interested in telling the truth than in catching the attention of their public, whose authorities cannot be checked, and whose subject matter is mostly lost in the unreliable streams of mythology. I'm going to apply the same rigor of collecting symptoms and then evaluating them and then offering a diagnosis of what the problem is and then offering my prognosis that this could happen again given what I've said if, if the same situation were to reoccur. And with regard to my factual reporting of the events of the war, I have made it a principle not to write down the first story that came my way and not even to be guided by my own general impressions. Either I was present myself at the events which I have described or else I heard them from eyewitnesses whose reports I have checked with as much thoroughness as possible. Not that the truth was easy to discover. Different eyewitnesses give different accounts of the same events, speaking out of partiality for one side or the other, or else from imperfect memories. His purpose in writing the book was not to call attention to himself or to reveal anything about himself or to justify his role in the conflict. He did not write a memoir. He's after much bigger game. He wants to teach the reader what he regards as the most important lessons about human political life, and in as much as politics is the peak human activity, the most important lessons about human life as such. It will be enough for me, however, if these words of mine are judged useful by those who want to understand clearly the events which happened in the past, which human nature being what it is, will at some time or other, and in much the same ways, be repeated in the future. 
My work is not a piece of writing designed to meet the taste of an immediate public, but was done to last forever. So here we have Thucydides setting out to revolutionize the way history is recorded. But very little is known about the man himself. What little we do know comes from his own writing. We know he was an Athenian and he was in his early 30s when war broke out in 431 BC. And he lived to see the end of the 27-year war. We also know he was well-educated and came from a wealthy family. He also tells us he was an Athenian general in the war, but lost a major battle to the Spartans. So his fellow Athenians voted to exile him which conveniently set the grounds for an even stronger piece of journalism. Whereas he'd spent the first half of the war on the Athenian side, he spent the second half of the war on the side of the Spartans and the Allies, which however much that might have been a misfortune to him personally, was of the greatest benefit to him for his great project. And he says this. He says that by virtue of his exile, he was able to get the other side of the story in a way that he never could have done had he remained a combatant on the Athenian side. And he was driven by his obsession to get the details right. He believes you have to get the facts on the ground from the people who knew best who were there at the time. He traveled all the way through the Greek world interviewing people on all sides, as he says in Book 5, after his own exile. So he, he really was collecting facts and collecting them very carefully. He would get right who the commanders of the ships were, how many people were involved, where precisely the battle took place. He really tried as hard as he could to be describing military facts on the ground in ways that we can still study. We can still plot out how a Thucydidean battle uh, might have occurred. So acrobeia, exactitude of the data, I think is, is the most important thing. He says that he tried to listen to what people said if he was there. If he was not there, he tried to get reports from others. And if he couldn't get uh, accurate reports, he tried to confirm them by witnesses. He consulted documents on stone and official records. And as vivid as the text is, it's also incredibly dense. The problem with reading Thucydides, of course, is that you pick up page one, you've got 500 more to go, and you're going to encounter 10, 20,000 personal names in Greek, place names. Uh, practices, protocols, and it just overwhelms you immediately. I mean, you pick up Thucydides and what in the world is Acarnania? And what in the world is the Gerousia? And who in fact is Ismenios? You don't know any of these things and they're, uh, they're just overwhelming. This is where Robert Strassler steps in, paving the way for non-experts to get easier access to the text. Well, I'm Robert Strassler, and uh, I'm identified as an unaffiliated scholar, which means I don't have an academic position. I don't have a professorship or a tenure or anything like that. I had a career for 25 years before I turned to the classics um, as a a businessman. I was in the oil and gas equipment business, a very interesting and exciting business in its way, full of risks and decisions that... uh, helped, uh, if you will, sharpen my, uh, sharpen my acuity for looking at ancient historians. Fueled by his passion for the classics and by his desire to make Thucydides accessible, Robert Strassler took it on himself to spend 10 years producing a reader-friendly edition of the text. 
The landmark Thucydides, a comprehensive guide to the Peloponnesian War, is now the standard version for English-speaking universities. The dozens of maps and hundreds of footnotes and appendices give the first-time reader a solid guide through the most dense passages. Thucydides was instantly recognized as a masterpiece and difficult, and nobody ever tried to make it easier for somebody to learn it. There is an academic attitude that this belongs to us, and uh, the great unwashed, they can't really understand it, so we'd have to deal with it. Uh, I've come across that. But for the most part, um, scholars were really very, very happy to help me. Of course, I underestimated. I thought it would take me two years, and uh, Thucydides took me closer to 10 years. And Strassler, like anyone who immerses themselves in the Peloponnesian War, is blown away by the sophistication of Thucydides' mind. It's astounding that he could do it. It's very hard. You know, it's like when I read about people who could memorize the entire, whatever it is, 24,000 lines of Homer. I, I say, well, that's, you know, they must have been sick. What's going on? I, what kind of brain did they have? Well, he had a very fine computer in his head and he could remember a great deal, and he must have had long winter evenings with nothing to do in which he sat down and wrote all this, poured over his thing, his notes maybe, and he, I, rather than with a large roll behind him, he probably had something to write little notes on, and he may have even developed a little sort of cursive shorthand so he could take down things very easily and fast. So you have one man single-handedly pioneering the way war is reported, wandering around ancient Greece as battles flare up around him, interviewing anyone of any standing who would give him any worthwhile information. Papyrus would have been the most common way to jot down notes, but could Thucydides have marched around the countryside with giant papyrus scrolls in his satchel? Yeah, that's, that's a funny idea of him walking around with a giant papyrus scroll. I suppose it's possible, although, you know, it, it, it's, it's a humbling fact. It's been established that people in pre-literate cultures have much better memories than those of us who live in a literate culture. And Greek culture, while it was literate, was very much a culture of memorization. Um, you know, just as you have schools in the Muslim world today that teach primarily memorization, so the education of a of a well-born Greek schoolboy consisted, you know, um, primarily in memorizing Homer and so on. So we can be sure that, uh, you know, that the, the Greeks generally probably had better memories than we did, and that 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 Thucydides had quite an extraordinary one. Mm-hmm. But it's possible, as you say, that he lugged around that large scroll of papyrus. Who knows? My assumption is that he put a lot of emphasis on getting right, getting down pretty early, as early as he could, the data that he thought was important from a particular episode. So if he wasn't lugging around giant papyrus scrolls, people had wax tablets on which they took notes, and it looks like a palm pilot. Um, And what it would have been is a hinged wooden thing with a cover and a hinge, and a piece of uh, wax in it. And you would scratch on the wax your notes and then transcribe that onto papyrus. And he likely wouldn't have to do the transcribing himself. Thucydides was a wealthy guy. So I think we can assume he would have been able to dictate to uh, some convenient scribe slash slave in his employ um, his thoughts. So Thucydides stockpiled reams and reams of factual notes, 
but beyond transmitting a list of facts to his readers, he offers much more. He has an acute sense of judgment so that he'll back off from just an elaborate, detailed chronicle and will reflect on what a particular set of occurrences meant. He'll, he'll do that either in the context of a speech that someone's giving at the time or, more rarely, his own analytic observations about the situation. And what's more, he recognizes that most people like journalism that conforms to their prejudices. And this, of course, is a plague today, you know, that people only get the news from sources that share their bias about the news. Thucydides makes it clear that no one who has biases about the Peloponnesian War is going to be gratified by his history. Because whatever city you're from, he's going to present a version of the war that is not your city's version of what happened. You know, it's not one that's going to vindicate your city's justice or praise its courage. He um, exposes the truth about the war, which is not ultimately uh, flattering to any of the participants. You're listening to the documentary Thucydides, the First Journalist, on ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on RN and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. So here we have a man wandering around ancient Greece, aiming to capture bias-free truth in his writing. It was a challenge no one before him had ever attempted, at least not to the same level of detail and precision. And he's doing this while a tumultuous battle between two diametrically opposed superpowers rages around him. His observations on power, politics, and human nature endure to this day. Ideas producer Nikola Lukšić picks up the story from here. While we can't give you a play-by-play of the entire 27-year war in an hour-long documentary, there are a few scenes that are held up as the gold standard, the massacre at Corsaira being one of them. Corsaira was a tiny city-state on what is now known as the island of Corfu. It was the first city-state to implode early in the war. Corsaira became a political football between the two sides, and each of the two sides was seeking to influence events there. And very quickly, things turned ugly, as people in the city fervently allied themselves to either the Spartan or the Athenian cause, oligarchs versus Democrats. Invariably, it's the oligarchs and the Democrats that are the two sides in these civil wars. Um, the oligarchs and Democrats each pushing their interest in the guise of promoting the general good, um, each not hesitating um, to go as far as murdering those on the other side. And um, 
the stages by which um, the, the conflict between the oligarchs and the Democrats in Corsaira degenerated into civil war with the two sides then intervening, both the Spartan fleet and an Athenian fleet intervene. And when the Athenian fleet prevails over the Spartan fleet, that means that the Democrats um, now have a free hand um, within the city, um, you know, which they use you know, in the most you know, terrible um, and, and, and merciless way. Most of the other suppliants who had refused to be tried killed each other there in the temple. Some hanged themselves on the trees and others found various other means of committing suicide. Victims were accused of conspiring to overthrow the democracy, but in fact, men were often killed on grounds of personal hatred. There was death in every shape and form, and as usually happens in such situations, people went to every extreme and beyond it. There were fathers who killed their sons. Men were dragged from the temples or butchered on the very altars. Some were actually walled up in the temple of Dionysus and died there. Uh, he talks about um, uh, war is a uh, harsh teacher, and it brings out the worst in human nature, and it's there. It's the culture turns out to be a veneer that can be stripped away and people are, are exposed as vicious and nasty as well as their other features. Because of many calamities, as happens and always will happen while human nature is what it is, war is a stern teacher. Uh, I think it uh, deserves attention. It's worth reading what he has to say about the Corsarian Revolution. And he takes one instance and makes a universal case for what happens to people in certain situations. War is a stern teacher. It's just a welter of blood. And Thucydides stands back and says in chapter 82, so savage was the progress of this revolution, and it seemed all the more so because it was one of the first which had broken out, but later every state became convulsed in this way. And that's what happens to Athens in Book 8. But he, he talks about the savagery that happens to human nature when there's a deterioration of civic trust and civic harmony. War is a stern teacher. But war is a stern teacher, and the Greek there is bios didaskalos. War is a, both a teacher of violence and a violent teacher um, in the Greek. In depriving them of the power of easily satisfying their daily wants, it brings most people's minds down to the level of their actual circumstances. And then he goes one step further into abstraction and talks about how language itself becomes corrupted under the force of these horrible circumstances. To fit in with the change of events, Thucydides says, words too had to change their usual meanings. What used to be described as a thoughtless act of aggression was now regarded as the courage one would expect to find in a party member. To think of the future and wait was merely another way of saying one was a coward. Any idea of moderation was just an attempt to disguise one's unmanly character. Fanatical enthusiasm was the mark of a real man, 
of a real man. And to plot against Anyone an enemy behind his back was perfectly legitimate self-defense. Um, and he, he goes on. But this, he, he's so sensitive to the way language itself explodes under the kinds of horrors that civic warfare uh, generates. Was the cause of all these evils. Yeah, as, as a, a result, result of these revolutions, there was a general deterioration of character throughout the Greek world. The simple way of looking at things, which is so much the mark of a noble nature, was regarded as a ridiculous quality and soon ceased to exist. Society had become divided into two ideologically hostile camps, and each side viewed the other with suspicion. That's... That really is Thucydides' vision, and I think the brilliance of his um, ability to stand back and examine stuff that is almost unbearable to look at. Uh, you know, the, the odd thing is the intelligence itself is passionate. It's a very cold, analytic vision, but it has enormous passion behind it, uh, of uh, the passion to believe in saying exactly what is happening and to be able to stomach that and put it down. I don't think anybody's done it better. Having provided the particular account culminating in those reflections, he then provides these this general political analysis of the relation between foreign and civil war and of why it was that civil war led to the complete you know, collapse of society in the cities. It's just extraordinarily powerful. And one of the most powerful things about it is that Thucydides doesn't really take sides. So whatever sympathy you might have had for either side would not survive Thucydides' account of, of, of the of, of the equally um, the equally ruthless way um, in which you know the two sides you know waged the battle, and then his account of civil strife as such um, is remarkable for whom it accuses. You know Thucydides certainly doesn't mince words, and Thucydides certainly doesn't hesitate to assign blame you know, where blame must be assigned. But the real point that he wants to make in his presentation of civil strife is that um, the culprit is the weakness of human nature. Human nature is such that if you put it in a situation where the rug has been pulled out from under it, which is the situation that people find themselves in in wartime, where nothing that was secure seems secure, you know, not even you know, the means of daily subsistence, then he says, most men's tempers um, fall to the level of their of their circumstances, and you know the the dregs of human nature. You know, it comes to the fore. Thucydides' tone is not it's not a tone of indignant moralism. It's not a tone of blaming human evil and the evil people among us for ruining things for the rest of us. Rather, as I say, it's a a very methodical, very analytical account of the inability of human nature to withstand extreme stress 
and how this extreme stress inevitably leads to this, this horribly pathological self-destructive behavior. But this really uh, fascinated Thucydides, and he, I don't want to say blew it out of proportion, but he took that as a window onto the human soul, and he gives you a very long description. And essentially his interests are two. One, for him it showed that even people of the same family, the same community, were capable of quite destructive things if the veneer of civilization had been torn off and accepted modes of speech, uh, compliance with the law, uh, community standards were destroyed under the tensions and the passions of war, then people would kill everybody and anybody, anytime. Um, there's an irony about it that when revolutionaries proclaim universal truths and universal change, they often get rid of the law. And then when they find themselves in a position of authority, they have no legitimacy. So the first thing they do is reconstruct the law. The second lesson to us is be very careful uh, when you challenge the law, uh, even if your, mo your motives are good. Because if you destroy it, you may find yourself into, in a position where you wish that you hadn't because of its social utility. And once a law is destroyed or once a law is countermanded, it's very hard to regain public acceptance and respect for it. I don't think that there's a profound sadness in Thucydides, as some people do. Uh, I think there's a profound um, resignation in Thucydides, but a profound resignation involves an awareness of just how much one has to resign oneself to um, in human affairs because of how, how terrible and permanent and inevitable are the evils that plague human life. I would call him a pessimist. Pessimist, not in the modern sense of somebody gloomy and dreary, but more in the ancient sense of resolved and at peace with himself, with his knowledge that humans are predictable and that humans can be saved and they can create great things, but only if they have uh, certain protocols, the family, the community, a statesman like Pericles to guide them and to remind them not to do things that are illegal but not ethical or moral. And so I, I suppose that he would be a stern moralist in one sense, but also someone who's seen it all before. An old uncle who would, you know, as he was in the household, say, you know what, this is absolutely predictable when he hears the news. Or he'd say, what would you expect people to do? Of course they're going to do that, as if uh, he's seen it all before and he's somewhat um, – diffident about uh, what humans are capable of. Human nature is unchanging. So people in 2011 will have the same issues and will have the same reactions to those issues as they did in 431 BC. And, and when that thin veneer of civilization is peeled away, and it can, it can happen in revolution, as in Corsair, it can happen during illness and mass um, hysteria as during the plague. It can happen during a long uh, war as in the Peloponnesian War itself, then people begin to act uncivilized and they act in predictably human fashion. And he wants to explore that and leave a guidebook for us to uh, keep those warnings in mind. Aside from his collection of fact and his acute analysis of the action that unfolded in the war, Thucydides is also known for his distillation of great political speeches that were made leading into the war and during the war, speeches that are echoed by politicians today. 
He didn't have a tape recorder or a service like Hansard to rely on to record speeches word for word, but he says he did his best to replicate the core messages. Okay, I must admit one major challenge I run into is recording every exact word that every person said as the speech was delivered. I have found it difficult to remember the precise words used in the speeches which I listened to myself and my various informants have experienced the same difficulty. So my method has been, while keeping as closely as possible to the general sense of the words that were actually used, to make the speaker say what, in my opinion, was called for by each situation. Perhaps the most controversial thing of all in his history, he says he tried to record what thing people said, and this is now in ref- reference to his uh, over 130 speeches in both direct and indirect discourse. He tries to record what people said as closely as possible, but in some cases that was impossible, so he put into their mouths words which they, given their character and given the such situation as he knew it, they either did say or would have said or should have said. He uses the phrase tadeonta, the, the necessary things. I think these speeches were very long. He tried as best he could to find out what people actually argued. And then he abstracted from these long and probably rambling speeches the elements that he thought were the most important for explaining either the personality of the speaker, if the speaker was an important person, or the arguments that would affect the community to whom the speech was addressed that would compel them to make whatever decision they made. So you see political thinking taking place in these speeches in a way that is available in very few other authors. Just a wonderful clarity and precision about how an individual would be thinking as he made his political arguments. So this is essentially what Pericles said. Pericles was the great leader of democratic Athens when the war broke out. One of the most cited speeches through the centuries is the funeral oration he gave after the first round of Athenian soldiers were killed in battle. He starts off the speech quickly honoring the dead and the ancestors, but then swiftly moves into the praise of the nation's democratic principles. Our system of government does not copy the institutions of our neighbors. It is more the case of our being a model to others than of our imitating anyone else. Our constitution is called a democracy because power is in the hands not of a minority but of the whole people. Everyone is equal before the law. There is a great difference between us and our opponents in our attitude towards military security. Our city is open to the world, and we have no periodical deportations in order to prevent people observing or finding out our secrets. This is because we rely not on secret weapons, but on our own real courage and loyalty. Make up your minds that happiness depends on being free, and freedom depends on courage. Let there be no relaxation in the face of the perils of war. The question of how much Thucydides injected his own spin on the speeches he captured is still hotly debated among scholars. But what everyone agrees on is the man's genius. He was 
a brilliant guy. You can tell that from the intensity of the analytic uh, uh, passages in the work. He's a brilliant thinker and writer, but but what comes through is his intensity, the, the way he's torquing the language to get precisely the reality that he wants to convey. And he'll use anything that he can to, to put you in the middle, so to speak, of the intellectual issues in play at any one time. I would guess he'd be a rather intimidating man to talk to. Maybe not the kind of guy you could just sit and shoot the breeze with. He would be only interested in what you had to say that was intelligent, that was real. He has an austerity to him that shows him, to my mind, as a very private thinker, so interested in finding out the truth of what's going on, that he'll be a little bit contemptuous of ideological cliches. He'll strip away whatever he can see of pretense to try to get at what he sees as power relations and what's going on in terms of power. I I have no idea if he would have done that personally, but he would be a scary dude. But despite the austerity, Clifford Orman says that deep down, Thucydides would have a soft spot for humanity. Um, I'm going to say something which you're probably going to regard as quite silly. Uh, But uh, as there were many characters from antiquity of whom we have busts, portrait busts, and Thucydides is one of them. And in fact, there's a version of one of the finest busts of Thucydides in the Royal Ontario Museum, so I frequently go to commune with it, and it appeared on the cover of my book. If you look at that, if you compare that bust with the portraits of other great figures from antiquity, including great authors from antiquity that have come down to us, you get some idea of how the tradition regarded Thucydides. I say this because these portraits were not portraits of their physical likeness. Nobody knew what these people looked like. They were portraits of their minds or souls. And what's characteristic of Thucydides is a deep compassion, a deep compassion that is lacking from these other figures. And that's one of the things that most attracted me to Thucydides. There's a deep awareness in Thucydides of human suffering and a deep sympathy with the sufferer. On the other hand, Thucydides was an extraordinarily strong soul. Um, This suffering did not crush him. Um, I think he achieved um, resignation uh, to the fact that such suffering had always been and always would be a part of human life and that politics would probably always be more productive of such suffering um, than it would be capable of revealing it. So I think of him as being um, a very, very strong, but also, as I say, um, a very, a very humane and, and compassionate figure. So savage was the progress of this revolution that it seemed all the more so because it was one of the first which had broken out. Later, of course, practically the whole of the Hellenic world was convulsed with rival parties in every state. In the various cities, these revolutions were the cause of many calamities, as happens and always will happen while human nature is what it is. War is a stern teacher. 
Revenge was more important than self-preservation. Love of power, operating through greed and through personal ambition, was the cause of all these evils. And what would he have made of journalism today? Um, I suspect that you know he would find uh, journalism that he would admire. Although one does have to recognize, you know, what the Thucydidean test for good writing is, which is, will it bear the ultimate test of time? Right? Will people still be reading it 2,500 years from now, as people still read Thucydides 2,500 years after he wrote? Um, and of course, there's not much journalism that would 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 pass that exalted test. Mm-hmm. There's not much journalism, of course. I suppose the more prosaic and realistic test from Thucydides' point of view would be, is it written for a constituency to placate that constituency and reinforce the opinions of the world that that constituency already holds, or is it written to uh, try to genuinely broaden uh, people's understanding of the world? And of course, the peak of writing to genuinely broaden people's understanding of the world would be to produce a work that would stand the, the, the test of time. He would not be like Fox News. He, he would not seek to characterize anybody in reductive, simple-minded terms that dismissed their importance. Even Cleon, the, the politician he probably hates the most, he gives one of the cleverest speeches in the histories to. And he's, he's not um, interested in reductively making a cartoon out of any of the players in the history. And it may well be that my history will seem less easy to read because of the absence of a romantic element. It will be enough for me, however, if these words of mine are judged useful by those who want to understand clearly the events which happened in the past, which, human nature being what it is, will at some time or other, and in much the same ways, be repeated in the future. My work is not a piece of writing designed to meet the taste of an immediate public, but was done to last forever. He's the first war correspondent that is writing about something as it happens, A, and B, he's intimately involved in it. So he's taking enormous risk to his person to get on the scene. But he's a man of action. He's traveling around the Greek world. It's very dangerous. And he he is our first war correspondent. Though he lived to see the end of it, Thucydides cuts his account short in the war's 21st year and to clear himself as best he could from what they had to say against him with regard to the Phoenician fleet and other matters. He went first to Ephesus, where he made a sacrifice to Artemis. No one knows why his tale ended so abruptly, practically mid-sentence. Whether he died or was killed, or whether he got bogged down by the political demands in Athens, But what we are left with, 2,500 years later, is a text that truly set the standards for great journalism and astute political analysis. I only wish I had time to finish the story of the Great Peloponnesian War. Only seven more years to write about. Oh well. I hope what I have written down will stand the test of time. 
Reporting from ancient Greece, this is Thucydides, the Athenian, son of Olorus, signing off. Thucydides, the first journalist, was originally broadcast in 2010. It was produced by Nikola Lukšić. Sound design by Paolo Pietropaolo. Connoisseurs would have noticed that we took some liberty with Thucydides' words to make some of the scenes a little more radiophonic. For this episode, we drew from Rex Warner's 1954 translation of Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. We also relied heavily on Robert B. Strassler's edition of the text called The Landmark Thucydides, a comprehensive guide to the Peloponnesian War. Special thanks to all our guests. Clifford Orwin. I'm a professor of political science, classics, and Jewish studies at the University of Toronto. And I'm also a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. Carolyn Diewald, and I teach ancient history and classics at Bard College. Victor Davis Hanson, senior fellow in classics and military history at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and I'm a professor of Greek emeritus at Cal State Fresno. Robert Strassler, I'm identified as an unaffiliated scholar, which means I don't have an academic position, and I've over the years, read uh, Thucydides and Herodotus uh, the way some people have pick up the Bible and read the Bible every five, ten years. Many thanks as well to Lyndon McIntyre for playing the role of Thucydides. Dave Field was the studio technician for this episode. This is the first of a two-part series. Earlier, we heard about the Great Plague of Athens. I have to say it's a brutal scene. Bodies piled on bodies. Those who are still alive are vomiting every kind of vomit catalogued by the medical establishment. People are bleeding from their mouths and tongues. The brutality of that plague swiftly led to anarchy. For the vast majority of us, decency depends on certain expectations. And once those expectations are reversed, anything goes. Civilization is a very thin veneer under even slight amounts of pressure, that civilized order, that social contract, starts to break down. You'll hear more on Thucydides' enduring lessons from the plague in part two of our series. Danielle Duval is the technical producer for Ideas. Lisa Ayuso is our web producer. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.